Father, thanks for um, this morning and just the, the privilege we have to get into your word, to gather this morning, talk about you and what you've done, um, both in your word and through a long line of godly men who have sought to understand and apply your word to your church. Pray this morning as we stand on their shoulders in trying to understand your word and what you say, um, that we would honor you, that would be clear in our thinking, uh, that you would be exalted in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, well, let me, let me, start, let me start with reminding, uh, saying to all of you, Happy Reformation Day. Um, in case you're unaware, um, because sadly, most, most of the time, the church doesn't, you know, you can probably, if there's a chair in there, you want to roll up, you can, it's fine. Most people aren't aware, because church doesn't tend to celebrate anymore, that, that October 31st, 1517 is when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door and, and launched the Protestant Reformation. Um, and so, historically, every year on October 31st, the church would celebrate Reformation Day. Um, we have been taken over by Halloween. Um, so, but it's a great time to, be, to remind your families, incidentally, that it's Reformation Day. And uh, if you don't have a copy of the movie Luther, I prefer the old black and white version, not the contemporary version. The contemporary version is good. Uh, it's not as good as the old black and white. Um, as far as historically, um, you should buy one and watch it with your kids. Teach them about Luther. Um, it's it's worth it's worth watching. You probably download it anymore off the internet. The way that all these things work today. So, um, but I'd encourage you to. I teach my kids about Reformation Day every year, and then I tell them to celebrate Reformation Day. We're dressing up and going trick or treating. So, the, uh, <laughs> so feel free. But it's a good opportunity. You guys um, just leave pieces on every door? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 Don't gospel tracks. I want to get something that says, there's a chair right there, and then uh, it, or there should be more chairs you can pull out back right right here. Um, there's a, I, w- I want to get a Latin phrase over my door that says post tenebras loop, right? You guys have heard of that phrase? Mm-hmm. Post means after tenebras is darkness, Luke's is light. After darkness, light, which is attached to that day. So, anyway, um, since we're talking about that, I want to start by reviewing uh, from last week a little bit, because for those of you guys who weren't here last week or who might be new, um, we've been talking about the sacraments or ordinances of the church. Uh, those things that Jesus ordered the church to do, those things that are, we, we would say, sacrament in the sense that they are, they are these elements that are set apart for holy use, though they're normal elements. So, for example, water is set apart for the holy use of baptism, though it's a normal element. It's set apart for that purpose, for holy use. It doesn't, therefore, um, which I spoke about last week, have any magical properties because it's set apart for holy use. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, as the reformer said, ex opere operato, which means as a work worked. In other words, it's not, it doesn't work just because it works. Like you just don't put water on somebody in baptism and therefore now they've been regenerated and they're born again and they're, you guys follow me on that? The water just doesn't have some kind of power inherent in it. It's actually the believing in the promises that are being pictured in the water that saves you. You guys follow me on that? And so, um, the same thing is true when you come to the Lord's Supper. 
we take this bread and this cup and we set it apart. Normal stuff set apart for holy use. They don't in and of themselves contain any power spiritually. They, they, the, the, if you will, the grace that is appropriated through those is appropriated the same way grace is always appropriated in the life of the Christian, which is through the instrumentality of what? Faith. Faith, right? Faith is how grace is always appropriated to us um, through those through those sacraments ordinances. So that's what we've been talking about, and this this week we're getting we're spending more time in the Lord's Supper because I want to prove biblically or at least establish biblically what I argued last week. So last week I gave an outline for, for those of you guys just who were here and those who weren't here. For those who weren't here, this might be new. For those who were here, as a reminder um, that there are different views on the Lord's Supper. There's the view that's taken in the Roman Catholic Church. What Anybody know what it's called? Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, thank you. Um, a transubstantiation and, and or consubstantiation, depending on the Lutheran, or, I mean, excuse me, the Roman Catholic theology, theologian you talk to, among the Roman Catholics, they have transubstantiation and consubstantiation. They primarily all believe in transubstantiation, though. That's the official position of the church. And transubstantiation is that the substance transforms. Okay? So the substance of the bread and the substance of the wine or juice or whatever, if you will, transforms into the body and the blood of Christ. Physically, literally, transforms. The substance transforms. So, but what remains the same is what? What doesn't transform? The accidents. The accidents. The accidental properties. What do I mean by that? The substance transforms from bread to the body or flesh of Christ. Literally, you're eating the flesh of Christ, according to the Roman Catholics, but you don't have the taste and feel and smell of flesh. You have the taste and feel and smell of bread. You follow me on that? And they would argue that the blood transforms, or the, the wine transforms into blood, but you don't have the taste and feel and smell of blood. You have the taste and feel and smell of wine, but the substance has literally changed. Do you guys follow that? It's a Roman Catholic view. All right, so there's the Roman Catholic view. At, beyond transubstantiation, you have, or the Roman Catholic view, you have the Lutheran view. The Lutherans call their view real presence. What they mean is that Christ is really present at the Lord's Supper. But what they specifically mean is he's really present according to his humanity. Because they believe that at the resurrection, Jesus' body took on omnipresence. So that Jesus, Jesus, both according to his divinity and according to his humanity, because remember you have one person with two natures, fully God, fully man, they would say that his human body took on omnipresence so that Jesus is specially present according to his body at the Lord's Supper so that when you're eating the bread or the body of the Lord or drinking the wine, the blood of the Lord, right? When you're doing that, it's not that those substances transform. There's still blood, I mean, there's still, still wine, it's still bread, but what you're doing is, you, you, while you're doing that, Jesus is physically present. You guys follow me on that? Okay. And I got in a little bit. Then you have the Calvinist view. Um, the Calvinist view, they called real presence as well. John Calvin and those who followed him, the Reformed, they called real presence as well, but they, they distinguished, they said, listen, Jesus' physical body is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' present 
according to his divinity, however, in a special way at the Lord's Supper. You guys follow that? He's present in a special way at the Lord's Supper according to his divinity, not according to his flesh or his body. Okay? They would call it sort of a spiritual real presence. Okay? So he's really present in a special way, but only spiritually at the Lord's Supper. You guys understand that? Okay, so Roman Catholics, transubstantiation, Lutherans, real presence, physically specially present. Reformed or Calvinists, Real presence, but only spiritual according to his divinity. He's following that? And then the last group are the Zwinglians. Now the Zwinglians are those who said, Christ is only present at the Lord's Supper in a memorial way. So he's only there, he's not really present at all, except the Holy Spirit's present everywhere all the time, right? He's always present when the believers gather. That's the only way there's any kind of presence that all the Lord's Supper is, is a memory. It's a memorial. It's a remembrance. Now, what do you think of those four views? Obviously, because the Roman Catholics are the largest group in the U.S., that's the most, transubstantiation is the most popular view. But if you go to just evangelicals, what do you think of the three remaining, the Lutheran perspective, the Calvinist Reformed perspective, or the Zwinglian perspective? What do you think is the most popular? Zwinglian. How many of you guys have grown up all the time or been at the church whole life hearing, this is we remember. We remember, we remember, it's just a memory. Okay? Alright? That's what you're typically taught, that it's just a memory. And clearly, Calvin and the Reformers would say, it's definitely a, a memory. So would Luther and Lutherans, right? It's definitely a, a memory, but it's more than that. Now, I, I hold to Calvin's view, as do all the Baptists who came out of the London Baptists confession of faith who held to that and followed that group I, I hold to, to Calvin's view I do not hold to Zwingli's view uh, so I said that last week I said I think that not only is it a memory and not only is it a looking forward it's not only a looking back to what Christ has done and not only is it a looking forward to Christ coming to consummate the kingdom Right? You guys following that? The great wedding supper of the Lamb. Not only is it those two things, but I actually believe that the Lord's Supper, at, at the Lord's Supper, Christ is really present in a special way according to his divinity, in a way he's not present all the rest of the time. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that he never, ever communicates his presence to us in that way, but the Lord's Supper has something special about it. I would say that about both of the sacraments, both Lord's Supper and baptism, I would also, and, and that, that's why I say, I think we ought to do it every week. I actually think it's an error not to do it every week. Last week I told you that if you opened the Didache, Didache means the teaching, it was the church manual used in the second century by the majority of the churches, including the followers of the apostles. Those guys who were discipled by the apostles used the Didache. If you read the Didache, chapter 14, they flat out tell you they, the early church participated in the Lord's Supper every week on the Lord's Day. Incidentally, they took what John says in Revelation chapter 1 about, you know when John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? They took that as meaning Sunday. They considered the Lord's Day to be Sunday, and that was the day that the church corporately gathered for worship and took 
the Lord's Supper. Notice that possessive nature of the, this supper belongs to the Lord, this day belongs to the Lord. And they believe they, should, they ought to take the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. And the early church indisputably did that for the first 500 years, without dispute. That began to change because of Roman Catholic theology, honestly. Um, they began to withhold the table from um, the people on a regular basis. In fact, in Roman Catholicism through the medieval period, by the time Luther comes along, the people weren't allowed ever at the communion table or at the Lord's Supper. They actually had a separate room where the priest would go back and take it. The people, they couldn't even see it. There was a wall, they'd go back and they would take it. Um, and, and Luther and the Reformers began to bring back the Lord's Supper and let the people participate and then eventually in the Counter-Reformation at Trent, the Roman Catholic Church reinstituted it weekly in front of the people and let them come. You guys follow me on that, a little bit of the history of it? So, great, the Didache says we should, but the Didache is a subordinate authority. The only real, the the only final authority is the Bible, right? So Calvin says that it's a spiritual real presence and we should take it every week. The Didache and the Reformers, and the, or the Reform said that, the Didache, they took it every week. So what? Does the Bible teach what you're saying? That's where I set it up to last week. You guys with me? Okay, so by review, that's where I came to last week. I, I came to the point last week where I said, Calvin said this, the Reformed said this, the early Baptists said this, the Didache and the early church spent the first 500 years, according to them, they, they, that's just how they practiced it. Um, so, if that's all true, great, but where is it in the Bible? Okay? It's easy to find remembrance. Look at Luke chapter 22 with me really quickly. Um, and let's, let's make sure that we know the remembrance part is easy to find and demonstrate. Luke chapter 22. And look at verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, in the new, is the new covenant in my blood. Um, and, and then, as you know, with Paul, he, he goes on to tell you that there's another, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, you follow me on that in 1 Corinthians 11. So you see there, clearly, there's this word, what? Remembrance. So obviously, when we do it, we are doing this in remembrance of him. That's why I said is looking back to what Jesus has accomplished in establishing the new covenant and pouring out his blood to, as a payment for our sins, etc., etc. You guys follow me on that? That's generally how we see the, the, the Lord's Supper. And that's good. We should see it that way. It's that. Now, what about looking forward? Look, look up at verse um, 16. For I tell you, he's talking about his earnestly desire to take the Passover. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, how does Paul pick that up? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11.
because here Paul is actually teaching on a problem in the church, and he reminds them of the nature of the Lord's Supper while he's teaching them about a problem they're having in the way they deal with the Lord's Supper, and frankly, their love feasts. And those were two separate events, love feasts and the Lord's Supper. They oftentimes get conflated by people because they run together in Scripture, but they were actually two separate events. They had a love feast, they had a big feast, and then they actually had the Lord's Supper where they actually had the bread and the cup separate from those two things, and it wasn't too, too long into church history before they separated the love feast from the Lord's Supper altogether. Um, but initially they would have those two things together. Um, but they saw a distinction in them. Paul actually makes one in 1 Corinthians 11. I don't have time to get into that today. But look at verse uh, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord, verse, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, sorry. What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink of it in remembrance of me. So we see that repeated emphasis of remembrance, right? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, I won't drink this anew with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. Or when the kingdom of God comes, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a looking forward. Okay? So there's a looking back on what Christ has done, there's a looking forward to what he'll do. Now, how do we tie that, um, if you will, uh, tie a bow in that? Let, let me, uh, and then, and then come, back, come back to the current presence. Let me tie a bow in the future looking this way. Do you guys know the difference between betrothal and engagement? First century, they practiced betrothal. Now we practice engagement. Anybody know the difference? No? Okay, betrothal is arranged in some way. What did you say, Adam? Divorce rate was slightly lower back then. The, the, the divorce rate was lower. Um, that's hard to know. Um, they gave certificates of divorce out like mad, actually. One of the things Jesus had to deal with was the high divorce rate is one of the things Jesus had to address, actually. And the problem in the church was there were lots of polygamy, which is why Paul said only you, 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 only, you can only have one wife if you're going to be an elder. Um, so, yes, sir. Betrothal wasn't wasn't casual. It was it, it was pretty much a covenant of, in, in its own of, of the pre-marriage. Okay, so betrothal had a stronger sense to it than engagement did. You, usually, their weddings, their marriages were all arranged. That it's for them the whole kind of lo- what they call love marriages, or we, you know, if you go to an arra- country that arranges marriage, they call what we do love marriages. In other words, you have this sort of romance and you get married. They, that's just foreign to them. So they, they, all, they all did arranged marriages. That was normal. But uh, they didn't marry for love. They married and committed to love one another, right? Just novel for the Western mind. We only, we only do things we already feel like doing. We don't make commitments we don't feel yet. So um, it's a real problem in our culture, incidentally. But they, they, would get, they would get betrothed. There was actually a betrothal ceremony. When the betrothal ceremony happened, it was much like getting married today in the sense that um, you were committed. To get out of it, you had to get a divorce. Mary and Joseph were betrothed, right? But they didn't have sexual relations because they weren't yet married. So when Mary turns up pregnant, what does Joseph seek to do? Divorce her. Why does he want to divorce her? Because betrothed to her, and to get out of betrothal, it was so strong, you had a divorce. What happened to betrothal is, it was... 
somewhat analogous to our engagement. There's a heavy commitment there, but in their case, an even stronger commitment that you could only end with divorce. You would give a betrothed, the groom would leave. And he would go establish himself in whatever way, and generally, within the next year, he would return. And the bride never knew when he would return. She just knew he was going to return. And the day he returned was the wedding day. Period. So as soon as he rode into town, if you will, the wedding day commences. And then they would have a week-long um, a week-long reception. So dads, if you think about the expense of your receptions now, right? A week-long reception. The whole city would close down. The whole town would close down and they would have this wedding and, and a week-long reception. But what happens is, is that the, the groom comes into town, so the bride is constantly doing what? Preparing. She's constantly preparing. Every day she has to be prepared because at any time the groom could show up and if the groom shows up and she's not ready, there goes the wedding day. You follow? That was betrothal. Now, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that I betroth you to, to one groom who is Christ. In other words, our marriage to Christ, if you will, in the new covenant is called a betrothal. Called a betrothal. You following that? We've been betrothed to him. That's why you get a parable like you do in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew, where you get this parable of these ten virgins who are preparing themselves for the groom. And when he comes home, they haven't been prepared, and so they're cast into hell. Right? And there's, then there, there's one, at least, who's prepared. I forget. Is that right? You guys remember? remember? I, haven't, I haven't read it in the last few weeks, so I'm trying to... But anyway, some, at least one or more are prepared, and then the rest are not. And so they're cast into hell, and you, you come back to this question of, of what's going on there. It's why are they, that, that parable matches this whole idea that we're the church preparing for the groom to come. And when he comes, what happens? What do we call it? Anybody know? Well, he's coming, it's consummation, but what's that great day called? Resurrection. Well, that's the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. The day of the Lord. Okay, thank you. What did you say, Emmanuel? It's the marriage of the Lamb. Marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're the bride, constantly preparing ourselves for the returning groom who are betrothed to him, waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what Jesus is saying. I won't drink this wine with you. I won't eat this bread with you until the kingdom comes. You proclaim my death until that kingdom comes. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Because we're looking forward. We've looked back. Now we're looking forward. And then I'm going to look presently. Revelation 19. Now look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For his marriage, or excuse me, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. You guys follow that? How did she make herself ready? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now I want you to know that. She's clothed herself with fine linen. You go, I thought of the gospel, Jesus clothes us with his. Yes, that's true when you're talking about justification. But here they're not talking about justification. They're talking about the bride preparing herself. 
She's justified. That's why it is granted to her. You follow that? She, you can't clothe yourself. Right? It has to be granted to you to do so. And here is the bride who has made herself ready, clothing herself with, the righteous, de- with righteous deeds. You guys follow that? So the bride's been preparing for the groom by living a holy life, keeping herself holy and pure and undefiled, not committing adultery with the world. You guys follow all that? You understand the imagery there? Okay? Looking forward to the wedding supper, the coming of the groom. And here we have the, the, group, the, the groom has come. Now look, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who were invited to mar- the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship, but he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus as the spirit of prophecy. Now, that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want you to notice something, though, because there's a second supper that happens in this passage. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb that you get to go to if you're a believer who's been making themselves ready, if you're part of the bride of Christ. Follow that? Okay, there's another supper, though. Verse 11, Then I, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God of God the Almighty. In other words, he's going to gather you up into a wine vat, the unbelievers, and stomp on them. He's treading the winepress. Okay? Um, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead and notice these birds are coming come gather for the great supper of God here's the second supper the first one is the wedding supper of the lamb that we all get to share in with the lamb as part of the bride who's made herself ready but there's a warning here He's writing this to the church. I want to warn you, make yourself ready. He doesn't mean you lose your salvation. But he's still warning you that if you're the saved, you're those who are making themselves ready. You need to be warned. You might be a false professor in the church. You need to be warned. You have the blessing of partaking in the wedding supper of the Lamb if you're part of the bride making herself ready. But if you're not, be warned. Because he's coming on a white horse with a sword from his mouth and he will gather all the unbelievers and tread and tread on them, if you will, stomp on them in the wine vat of his wrath. And he will then call the birds of the air and say, come gather for the great supper of God. Why are they coming? Here's the second meal. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Hear that? And if you go down to verse 21, he's talking about the lake of fire, and you go down there, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. So in Revelation 19, there are two meals. You're either eating at the meal, or you're being eaten at the meal. Those are the two options. 
Uh, you're at the wedding supper of the Lamb, or you're at the great supper of God. You don't want to be at the great supper of God. You do want to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Communion looks forward to that. The Lord's Supper looks forward to it. You guys follow? Okay, so there's a looking back, and there's a looking forward. Okay? And that's clear in the text. Zwingli saw that. Here's the dispute. Is there any present blessing whereby Christ is really present according to his divinity by the Spirit at the Lord's table? In other words, if it's just a looking back and a looking forward, that's a probably a good reason to do it every week, but it certainly isn't really necessary to do it every week, right? You follow me on that? Okay. Um, so is there anything more than looking back and looking forward? Can I demonstrate that in the text? Right? Let me deal with one small objection that comes from Roman Catholics before I do demonstrate the text. When Jesus says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood. The Roman Catholic asks what question of the Protestants? Anybody know? Don't you believe that the Bible's to be read literally? Do they not ask that? Okay? What do they mean? This says, this is my body. So when we take it, transubstantiation, which was come up with by Thomas Aquinas, incidentally, ten centuries later, okay? Transubstantiation... <laughs> must be true. Thomas Aquinas is just explaining for us and giving us terminology to understand how the church has always understood it because when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, Jesus literally means, this is my body and this is my blood. So that stuff must transform. To which, as a Protestant, you respond, how? It's not a trick question. Anybody want to respond? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Does he say, this is my body, this is my blood? Mm -hmm. yes. Is that what he means? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's what he means. Does he mean transubstantiation? No. So, how does he mean it then? Symbolically? Okay. So, symbolically, it doesn't sound like you're being very literal, Dwayne. <laughs> let, let, let me... Let, let me give you an explanation of that a bit, all right? They use that as identity language, okay? Rather than representative language. And that's a problem. That word is, okay, the to be verb. You guys know, we have the to be, to be verb in English. And when you move here from a foreign country, the to be, to be verb in English is thoroughly confusing. Because we're not an inflected language. In other words, we don't have to be and we don't have... Like, all these things we add to be for... Because we, we say, I am, you are, he is. Notice that? Okay. What? Is, are, am, be. Were. Was. How are any of those words related? <coughs> but they're all forms of to be, aren't they? So when you come here from a foreign country and learn English, you'll find that most people trying to learn English struggle with the to be verb. They struggle with it. Because in most languages that are inflected, which are a lot of languages of the world, they actually just have 
If you guys learn Spanish, have you learned Spanish? Okay, or Latin, or that you have a verb, and you just change the endings, right? But the verb looks the same. You guys follow me on that? Okay, English, that's not always the case. So when I say to be, right, I can also say I am, and that's just a first-person present sense of to be. We were is a first-person plural instead of singular form of, uh, uh, a past tense form of to be. You guys follow me on that? Okay. I am, you are, he, she, it is, we were, they will, okay, in some sense, is a future. All right, so now you notice the problem here with, okay, so we see the word this is, that word is is a to be, to be verb. This is my body. Now, what's interesting about the to be verb is that it can have a an sort of an equative sense where it, it says this thing is like this thing, or it can have a sense in which it says this thing, this is this thing. You follow me on that? So, so let me give you an example. This is Wayne. Okay? I just used the to be verb to say, this is literally Wayne. I've used it in a sense of identity. You follow me? Now, if I had a photograph of Wayne right here, and I said, this is Wayne, would I be telling the truth? Yeah. Yeah. If I had a photograph of him and said, this is Wayne, I'd be telling the truth. But is that literally Wayne? Well, yes, in one sense, right? It is in the sense that that actually represents Wayne. That's a real picture of him. But it's not Wayne in the sense that, that he's not in that picture. He's right there. Now, if Wayne holds up a picture of himself and says, this is me, and I'm sitting there, am I supposed to think, well, then, every time I have that picture with me, Wayne is physically present with me. <laughs> okay? This is essentially the error that the Roman Catholics commit with regard to Jesus. Think about it. Sitting at the meal, saying, as he hands them the bread, this is my body. This is my blood. He's sitting there, handing them the bread and the cup. Do you think the disciples thought to themselves, I'm about to literally eat the flesh of Jesus? No, his flesh and blood are sitting right there at the table with them. They understand this is, is representative language. You follow me on that? Okay? They didn't lose their minds that night. All right? They, they still understood things, okay? This is representative language. All right, so I want to deal with that objection. So when I get into Jesus really present at the Lord's Supper, I'm still using that language, this is my body, this is my blood, representatively. I'm not saying that the bread and the wine change into flesh and blood. You guys follow me on that? But I am saying that there's a real sense in which you can say this is Jesus' body and this is Jesus' blood, just like you can say at a picture of Wayne, this is Wayne. Okay? This is a real picture of Jesus' his body and blood given for us. And I believe he is really present there spiritually. Now, let me establish first that Christ can be present anywhere spiritually in a special way. Okay? Let, let me start establishing that first with 
Ephesians chapter 1. So look there. And then I'm going to look at a couple of passages that you've probably not considered this way, but are good examples. Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 3. Here's the controlling assertion of this, of verse 3 through 14. This is an interesting letter, Ephesians, because in most of Paul's letters, he starts off by saying something to them, which he does here, and grace and peace to you, and then he usually launches into a prayer for the church. I pray for the following things for you. Okay? Now, Galatians is the example. He doesn't commend them. He doesn't pray for them. He just immediately starts rebuking them. So it's an exceptional example in Galatians. He immediately jumps to rebuke because they're abandoning the gospel. In Ephesians, what's different is, instead of going into thanking God for them for these certain things or commending them for certain things, he gets to prayer at verse 15. And he commends them starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith and your love, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You saw, see that in verse 15 and 16? Okay, he gets there. But in verse 3 through 14, he does something different. He breaks out in worship. Verses 3 through 14. It's like all of a sudden, Paul just says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then says, notice the first word, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that? What, what is he doing there? What do we usually call that? When you say, blessed be God, what are you doing? Exalting God. You're exalting God. You're praising. You're worshiping, right? So here's the controlling assertion right off. Blessed be the God, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who's he worshiping right now? The Father. He's breaking into praise and blessing of the, fa of the Father. You guys follow me? Now, what's he going to praise and bless the Father for? Everything you read from here through verse 14 is a praise to the Father. The controlling assertion, he's breaking out into praise of the Father, and then he says, why? Who has blessed... Here's, here's the reason, you ready? And then he's going to define that more. Here's the primary reason why he's blessing the Father or praising the Father or breaking out of worship. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual, and I think that ought to be a capital S, because I think that's referring to the Holy Spirit, blessing in the heavenly places. Okay? I don't have enough time to do my exegesis and explain to you why I think this verse is Trinitarian, but I do. I'm just going to assert it today. You're going to have to dwell on it, deal with it, go read some commentaries and see if I'm right. Okay? But I think I, think, I, think I am, and I'm not going to defend it today. But notice the phrase, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is the Father being praised? Because what has He done? He's given His Son. And not only has He given us His Son, but He's given us what? The Holy Spirit who gives us every, if you will, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice, in Christ, that, word, that language is union with Christ language. Okay? You're in Him through faith. You're united to Him through faith by the Holy Spirit. In Christ, through faith, you've been united to Him. He has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what? why is He praising the Father? Because what has the Father given us? Every spiritual blessing in His Son. Now I want you to stop and consider that. 
just for a minute. This has nothing to do with Lord's Supper, but it has everything to do with the Christian life. Paul, when he thinks about the gospel and all the promises of ours that are, that are ours in the gospel, in his Son, in Christ, Paul thinks about who? Praising who? The Father. Forgiving all this to us. A lot of times we like to think about Jesus coming and giving his life and loving us, and he did. Okay? But he was sent by his Father because his Father loved us. You follow that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So here's the controlling assertion. I'm praising God because he's given us every spiritual blessing that's in the heavenly places in Christ. Now notice that we have every spiritual blessing in heaven in Christ. We currently have right now in our possession, belonging to us through our union with the Son, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You understand what a monumental statement that is right off the top. You follow me? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places you currently have in Christ as a gift from the Father. Do you understand how monumental that is? All of them. What spiritual blessings in the heavenly places do you not have? You, you have them all. All of them. They're currently yours. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's not going to bless us with them in the future. We already, they're already ours. This is why Paul can, I'm going to come back to this, but this is why he can make the kind of statement he makes in Ephesians 2. Look there really quickly. After he's been saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in verse 4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that's speaking of the Father again. Notice the Father's rich in mercy. He has this great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, when did he love us? Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. Who made us alive? The Father. With, through who? Jesus. Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now notice this. And raised us up. Notice the past tense. With him. And seated us with him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are you seated right now as a believer? Right now. You're seated with him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. All that belongs to the Son in heaven is presently yours. In Christ. This is why Paul is breaking out in praise of the Father. You don't deserve any of that. You were dead. You were his enemy. You were a son of disobedience. You were a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us, or toward us in Christ Jesus. You guys, you guys follow what's happening here? That's all yours right now. Okay, go back to Ephesians 1.3. So if this is all ours, if the Father is being worshipped, you, you want a passage that defines for you what worship is? 
on Sunday morning or any other time in life, just go meditate on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Here's worship. It's deeply Trinitarian. It begins by thanking or blessing the Father for what he's given us in Christ by the Spirit. Okay? Now notice, so what has he given us? What are the heavenly blessings that he's given us? Because he says, I'm praising him because he's given us all these heavenly blessings. There's currently ours, okay, in Christ. So what are they? Verse 4, now he starts to define what they are. Even as he chose us in him, that's the Father, chose us in him, that's Christ in the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay? In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. That's Christ. Okay, now, I want you to follow this. The whole first section is all on election and predestination. The first spiritual blessing that you have in the heavenly places is that the Father, before the foundation of the world, made a covenant with the Son in which he's giving his Son a people. And the first heavenly blessing you have is you're that people. The Father's giving to his Son that he determined to give them before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glorious grace. So that's the Father, if you will, planning our salvation in Christ and he's being praised for it. You follow that? Verse 6. Okay, now, verse 7. In him, that's in Christ, the beloved, now we've changed from the Father to Christ. Notice this, emphasis-wise here. In him, the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now here's, we've transitioned back to the Father here, but according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a, 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 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that's Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, so what he's saying here, incidentally, is that the Father has, before the foundation of the world, covenanted with the Son to give him a people, and we're those people. And to the praise of his glorious grace, and how amazing it is to be those people. We don't deserve that. That's all grace. Okay? Now he goes on to say, and in Christ, Christ has come in history. In history. He's come, and what has he done? He's redeemed us through what? His blood. He's given us forgiveness of sins. This is what he's. So here's before time. Now here's in history, Jesus carrying it out. You follow? Okay? In history, he's come and he's given us all this forgiveness of sins, redemption. He's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, we know his saving will, which is what he's talking about here, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And he's bringing all things, if you will, <coughs> and a union with himself, and notice in verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. That's in Christ again. Now we have this inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So now, not only are you before time given by the Father to the Son, and you have that blessing, 
But in time, in history, Christ came and actually accomplished your redemption, the forgiveness of your sins, making known to you the mystery of his saving will, and giving you a great inheritance in Christ. You follow? Okay. So the Father has planned all this. The Son has carried it out in history. And now finally, verse 13, in him you also... Now notice it was to the praise of his glory at the verse, in verse 11. So that we, verse 12, sorry. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, just like verse 6 closed out, the praise of his glorious grace. Now verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father planning it in his, before time, before the foundation of the world, the Son carrying it out in history, and the Spirit... Applying it to you. Applying it to you. He's the sealing you, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Notice that closed those three brackets to the praise of glory of grace. To the praise of glory to the praise of his glory. Okay? And so Paul's driving at here are all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that are ours in Christ. And we praise the Father for them. They're presently ours. Okay? Redemption was planned for us. Right? Redemption was accomplished for us. And redemption has been applied to us. The Father planned it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit applies it. All to the praise of His glory. The Father's given us all this. It currently belongs to us. So if those spiritual blessings currently belong to us, the question is, they currently belong to us, can we ever appropriate them? It's one thing that they're ours, and that the Holy Spirit guarantees they're ours. The question is, is there any sense in which we actually, not only objectively have them, but they are subjectively being applied to us? Yes. What's that called? Progressive sanctification. The Holy Spirit at work in you, growing you in holiness. You guys follow me on that? Growing you more and more into the image of who? Christ. You, you guys follow here? These blessings are all being applied to you. How does that happen? Well, one, through prayer. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse... Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14... Notice what Paul's doing here. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Is that a spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Yes! To be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being is the current, present, appropriation of of spiritual blessings that are yours in the heavenly places. You guys follow that? Paul's praying that that will happen. What does he say? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, Paul has a sense in which the Holy Spirit is able to grow your understanding of the grace that is yours, the love of God that is yours, 
the spiritual blessings that are yours. That's an application of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places to you now that Paul asked for God to give to the church at Ephesus. Do you guys follow that? And what does Paul go on to say? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He's talking about answering the prayer he just prayed. According to the power of work within us. See that present appropriation by the Spirit of our blessings that are in heaven. Do you follow me on that? comes through prayer. Okay. Where else do we see Christ? So Christ is, by His Spirit, present with us because we're united to Him. And His Spirit is present with us, giving us all His benefits. Do you follow me on that? And He's doing that through prayer. He's doing that through prayer. He's doing that through, um, if you will, the preaching of the Word. He does that through church discipline. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at one of the most abused passages in all of Scripture. Okay? <laughs> that, uh, um, amazingly, both simultaneously, one of the most neglected passages in all of Scripture and most abused. Um, it's sort of like, um, this is a woman with an abusive husband right here, right? Just neglected and abused, this passage, okay? Look, look at Jesus is dealing with the community. What does he say? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's happening here? What's this describing? Excommunication or church discipline. That's what it's describing. Okay, to be excommunicated is to no longer be a part of the communion of the saints. Follow? Okay? Excommunication or church discipline is being described here. All right? And what are you declaring about a person when you discipline them? That they're wrong. And not only that they're wrong, but you're telling them that you're, you're treating them as what? A Gentile or a tax collector. What's that? An unbeliever. Interesting. Does the church, local church, have the authority to declare someone unbeliever? Yes, it does. What was interesting is there's a study that was just done by Lifeway, who's the Southern Baptist group at Ligonier. They just did a study. Um, one of the interesting stats I thought, most interesting stats for me in the whole study on, on Christianity in America, was that the average American, there were higher, of, of the average Americans polled, they polled evangelical Christians and average Americans. A higher percentage of the average Americans believed, of average Americans believed the church had a right to tell you or to declare someone unbeliever than evangelicals did. Which means that evangelicals are actually more individualistic about Christianity than the average unbelieving American is. That's sad, folks. Really sad. The Bible is very clear the church has a right to declare you an unbeliever. The church does not have a right to save you or damn you. Declaring something of you is not making you saved or unsaved. You guys follow the distinction there? Here is the church being told by Jesus, not just given the authority by Jesus to, to declare you an unbeliever, but being commanded by Jesus to do it. So it's not just the church has failed to use their authority that Jesus has given them, 
is that they fail to obey the command that Jesus has given them. If someone is in persistent, unrepentant sin, you go through this process. If they don't repent, you declare them an unbeliever. That's what it means to excommunicate. You're no longer welcome at the table because you're not in communion with us anymore. When you treat someone like an unbeliever, that doesn't mean what the Anabaptists did, which is to shun them. That's not what that means. Is that how you treat unbelievers? Treat them like an unbeliever. That's right. I shun all unbelievers. I don't talk to them. I'm not friendly to them. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Treat them like an unbeliever. That means you treat them like an unbeliever. Could they still come to your church service? Sure. Of course. Do you want unbelievers to come to your church service? Absolutely. Okay. What they're told is, you're not welcome at communion. You're not, a, you're not able to be a member here because you're not a believer. Yes, I am. Though the church has declared that you're not. But I am. Well, you're not giving any evidence of that because you refuse to repent of your sin. So the church sees you that way. You follow? What authority they have to do it? Look at what Jesus says. This is where we get into the real presence conversation with regard to the Lord's table. Truly, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, that's a perfect tense, which means, well, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That's a perfect tense. Shall be bound is a bad, is, I don't like that translation, but it's the only thing we can really do to pick up the Greek verb perfect tense. It means it has happened in the past and has ongoing implications. It's like saying, has been bound in heaven. But the problem with saying has been bound in heaven is like saying, uh, is, it sort of takes away the ongoing implications. So it's past event that has ongoing implications of the way the Greek verb happens here. We just don't have a great way to translate that into English. So we say shall be. And when you say shall be, it sounds like one follows the other. You're binding this on earth, and then after you bind it on earth, then it's bound in heaven. You just follow me on that? Okay, that's not what's being said here. What's being said here is whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven, and all you're doing is declaring the ongoing consequences of what the court in heaven has determined. All the church is doing is that. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever the church is declaring has already declared to the court in heaven. Follow? And the church is just announcing it. He's talking about church discipline here. He isn't talking about binding and casting out demons. Okay? If, and I've asked this question a million times. I continue to ask it. If all these people keep binding all these demons, who keeps letting them go? Right? That becomes the operative question. Okay, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about church discipline. Whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. In other words, you're doing church discipline, you're declaring what the court in heaven has already decided about this person. That's, a, that's reassuring you as the church that you have the authority to do this. You follow that? Okay, now he goes on and says this. More reassurance. Okay, you ready? Again, I, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is talking about the church gathering for discipline. Or where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is talking about church discipline, not your personal prayer life. Jesus is, by the Spirit, always present when you pray. The Lord is omnipresent. He didn't just like, well, when I pray by myself, he's not there. I need to get somebody else, okay? That isn't the point of this text. 
Is it true that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he's present among them? Yes, sure. Is that what this verse is about? No, this verse is about Jesus being present. Notice this. According to his divinity by the Holy Spirit, present as the head of his church, making a judicial declaration about a person who professes to be a believer that they are not no longer permitted to call themselves such. Jesus, the head of his church, is present with his church, declaring that about that person when the church exercises church discipline in a biblical manner and the unbeliever refuses to repent. You guys follow me on that? So the head of the church is present. Yes, sir. So does the two or three more for making sure it's a good decision, not necessarily um, to make sure that God's present? It's, it's that when the church is gathered, it's the idea that when the, the body is gathered, then Christ is there to make this declaration within the context of the local body. Does that make sense? So it's, it's just the idea, you can't make it by yourself about the person. It's not just about the wisdom of the decision, it's about the authority you have to make it. In other words, who's the head of the church? Jesus. He's the only one who has any real authority. All other authority that elders exercise is just borrowed authority. You guys follow me? They're just administrating what the head of the church wants, which we find in the word of God. Does that make sense? Your elders are not like Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. They're just men who are godly men, hopefully, who are able to teach, who can teach sound doctrine, who can refute those who contradict, who want to apply the Word of God to the people of God and understand they can go no further than that. So Christ is present as the head of the church, guaranteeing I as the head of the church am here making this judicial declaration with my church about this sinner who refuses to repent. You follow me on that? Okay. So Christ is specially present at times. Church discipline. But what about the Lord's Supper? So this is why, by the way, church. I, I would contend that it's because Christ is specially present at the Lord's Supper is why church discipline has some bite to it. Think about it. If the Lord's Supper doesn't actually presently do anything, it's just a memory and a looking forward. It doesn't actually presently communicate any grace to you. What difference does it make if you're excommunicated? You can still come and sit under the word and you can still come and pray. You follow? But if it has some real spiritual benefit in the here and now and you're no longer allowed at the Lord's Supper, you're losing out on real spiritual benefit in the here and now. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so let's, let's ask that question. Here, here's the first point of that. I'm going to make it quick. I'm going to deal with it some on Sunday uh, in my sermon, but I'm going to make it quick. The Lord's Supper is a new covenant meal. What did I tell you uh, on last Sunday when I talked to if those, those of you who were at Sovereign Grace Sunday? What did I tell you about making of covenants? What do they always do? With, man, they make covenants in Scripture. They have a meal. What does a meal symbolize? Fellowship. Fellowship or relational intimacy. That you're communing together, that you're in fellowship together. Follow? So when Jesus gives us a meal to continue to participate in, in the new covenant, what's he keying us off to? There's a fellowship that's happening. First with him. And then with one another. We often think about the communion meal or the Lord's Supper or about primarily being about horizontal. You and me together, 
taking this together. That isn't what it's first about. It's ultimately and primarily about the fact that you're in a new covenant with the Lord, and when you come to that meal, every time you come to it, you're in relational intimacy or fellowship with Him. He's present for that, spiritually. Has to be, or else you can't really have fellowship with Him. Now, that's nice to make that assertion about New Covenant meals, and it sounds like I'm making a biblical theological argument, but is there anywhere in the Bible where it says that Christ is actually present, fellowshipping with us at the meal? There is, in fact. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, what I want, to, what I want you to notice here is that Paul is... Paul has been talking about, um, in chapter 9, some about this idea of eating food sacrificed to idols. He says, listen, when you go in the public marketplace and you buy meat, if that meat was sacrificed to idols, you can still buy it and eat it. Okay, It's fine. Idols don't mean anything to us. That sacrifice, we can give a rip about what they do. That's all fake anyway. Go ahead and buy the meat and eat the meat. That's fine. In the marketplace, buy it and eat it. Okay, Except... If your Jewish friends are around who are going to stumble because of this, don't. If the Jewish Christians are around, even if Jewish unbelievers are around, don't buy the meat and eat it because the Jewish unbelievers won't understand and we're trying to reach them for Christ. You follow the argument he's giving? Okay? So you know, roughly 10 to 20% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. That's why everywhere Paul goes, to every Roman city he goes to, what's the first place he goes? Synagogue. Synagogue. Why are synagogues everywhere? Because there are so many Jews in the Roman Empire. And so he's saying, Paul's telling the church at Corinth, listen, if you go buy the meat sacrificed to idols, that's fine in and of itself, you can eat it. However, do not go buy it and eat it if it's going to be a stumbling block for the Jewish Christians. Don't go buy it and eat it if it's going to keep Jewish unbelievers from coming to Christ. You follow? Okay. So that's what he's saying about meat sacrificed to idols. Now he goes on to say, however, while it's true that you can eat meat sacrificed to idols, it is not true that you can participate in their idolatrous feasts. When they have a feast, which they had these whole ceremonial feasts that were idolatrous, they worshipped their false gods, they participated in eating this food, they participated in orgies, the whole thing. Okay, You can't participate in that. You can eat their food, but you, at the marketplace, buy it and eat it, but you cannot go to their idolatrous feast. It is not okay to be present eating that meat at their feast. That's what he's dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Is follow? Okay, so verse 16, he says this. Actually, let's start in verse 14. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. That's talking about the Lord's Supper. That cup. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? Notice that word participation is interesting. Does anybody have any other translation or version? Sharing. Sharing. It's the word koinonia. Fellowship is that word in the Greek. Okay? Intimate relation. Fellowship. You To fellowship with somebody, where do they have to be? Present. Is follow? Okay? Is it not a participation, a sharing, a fellowship, a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation 
in the body of Christ. A koinonia, a fellowship, a sharing in the body of Christ. Now, what did I say about the blood and the body? Christ. They're representative of him, right? The wine and the bread are representative of Christ. When we take those representative elements, he's present fellowshipping with us. Having koinonia with us. Christ is really there. Because there is one bread, we who are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? The food That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan, sac- pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Interesting, the word for koinonia shifts there, and it's less strong. In other words, up before in verse 16 and 17, the word is koinonia. In verse 20, the word for participant is actually a different Greek word, though related, which has less strength to it. In other words, he's saying you're participating with them, but not in the same way that you participate with Christ, because he's real. He's actually present. In a real sense, when you participate with these demons, you're, they're real demons. Their gods are false. The demons are real, but you don't have fellowship with them in the same way you have fellowship with Christ, because your fellowship with Christ is union to him by the Spirit. You guys follow the distinction there? Okay. So, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, you cannot come to the Lord's Supper where you are in fellowship with him, united to Christ, koinonia with him, you're sharing with him, and then go and participate in one of these idolatrous feasts and try to be in fellowship with demons. Can't do both. Interesting, isn't it? Here's Paul directly saying, Jesus is present at the Lord's Supper. And he uses this, this, see Antonio, he uses this in a very strong sense. I've got five minutes, guys, and I'm going to land. He uses it in a very strong sense, right? Um, okay. So there's a real participation. It's more than just a memorial meal. It's more than that. In fact, we see that it's more than that in the way that Paul deals with their abuse of it as well. So we see it here, but we in direct language, he just flat out says it. We see it because that's the, co- the, the context of a new covenant, of any new covenant meal, is fellowship. We see it here in 1 Corinthians 10 because Paul flat out tells us Christ is present, fellowshipping with us. Um, and we see it in that Christ can be specially present in places like church discipline, that he's appropriating the spiritual blessings to us that we have that are ours in Christ Jesus presently through things like prayer or preaching of the word. It's also true in the Lord's Supper, and we see it pres- this, it, this same idea present when he rebukes the church at Corinth for their abuse of the Lord's Supper and their love feast. They abuse both. Okay, so look here, verse 17 but in the, of chapter 11. But in the following instructions, he's commending them on something. Verse 2, look at verse 2 of chapter 11 first. Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. Okay? Now verse 17. 
but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. In other words, I'm about to rebuke you. Okay? <clears throat> you ready? Because when you come together, this is talking about corporate worship here for the Lord's Supper. Now notice what Paul's going to do when he says you come together for corporate worship. He's assuming every time they do, they take the Lord's Supper. They continue to follow. Right? When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now this is the Apostle Paul speaking out about corporate worship and somebody, and you gather for corporate worship, it's to your detriment. That's a stinging rebuke, isn't it? Stinging rebuke. When your church gathers for corporate worship, it's to your detriment. Right? <laughs> That's about as bad a rebuke as you can get about your Sunday morning worship service. <laughs> You guys follow? Okay, why? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. That word, factions or divisions. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, he uses the word faction divisions divisions uh, in two different ways. He's like, yeah, of course there are going to be some divisions among you to show who's true and who's false. Those divisions are caused by false teachers. But he's actually saying these are worse divisions than those, or different than those. What does he mean? Verse 20. For you, you come together, when you come together, verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, isn't this interesting? He just assumes when you come together, what's at the center of what you're doing? Yeah. Eating the Lord's Supper. He just assumes that. Now, I'm not saying there's any direct command in here. You have to take the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. <coughs> But man, it sure seems to be the assumption of the Apostle Paul that you are, isn't it? All right. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In fact, they're not eating the Lord's Supper. Why? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's what they did in the early church. They had what was called the love feast. They'd come together they'd have a whole meal together. And then they would take the Lord's Supper together. But they usually did those two things at the same time. Not in every case. They start to separate pretty quickly in the second century. But, but they generally did them together. The love feast and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was not a whole meal. Like You didn't get full. Okay, bread, wine, real simple. Okay, and you just broke off a piece of the bread, which is unleavened, so it's a cracker, a piece of a cracker, right? And some wine, you drank out of the cup that everybody was sharing. Okay, that's it. That's all the Lord's Supper was. It didn't fill you up. So what's Paul rebuking here? He's rebuking their behavior, where the Lord's Supper and the Love Feast are put together. The love feast was the meal that came before where they all eat a meal. And what are they doing? The rich people who own houses that they can eat in, because only rich people own houses they could eat in, are putting themselves ahead of the poor who have nothing, and they're eating the whole meal. They're gorging themselves on the love feast and not leaving anything for the poor people to eat. In other words, what's the faction that's going on here, the division? It's between who? The rich? And the poor, there's a little bit of class warfare happening in the body of Christ. Follow that? 
There's a lot of ways that division can happen in the body of Christ. One of them is between wealthy people and poor people, and Paul's rebuking that, saying that because you're causing these kind of divisions, you wealthy people, because you're treating the poor who have nothing as if they, they are nothing, right? You're not even eating the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is something different than that. You're missing the whole point of the Lord's Supper. How do I know? Look, verse 23. For I received from the Lord Jesus, the Lord, what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, the night was betrayed, took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often and drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <coughs> so, so here's what's happening, right? Is Paul is saying, don't you remember what the Lord's Supper is about? Christ made a new covenant with us. Him with us, and therefore in him, us with one another. The, the vertical's first. The horizontal springs out of that. You follow me? We're in covenant and communion, or fellowship with Christ, through union with Christ, and therefore in him we're united to, or in covenant or fellowship with one another, and we're supposed to live that out. You follow? That's a reality. Christ's prayer that we would be in him, united to him, and to one another is a present reality. Objectively true. We just don't always experience it because of our sin. You follow that? The difference, distinction between sub, just because not subjectively something we experience all the time doesn't mean it's not objectively a reality. And Paul is going back to the objective reality saying you're missing the point, and you're not subjectively experiencing it because of that. You follow? Okay. Instead, you're causing division and missing what's objectively true. Whoever, therefore, verse 27, eats the bread and, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, which seems to be here speaking of those people who don't participate in the Lord's Supper properly because why? They're causing division in the body of Christ. That's the unworthy manner here. What's the sin? You're a person causing division in the body of Christ. If you're doing that, in any way, shape, or form, causing division between brothers in the body of Christ, you're not welcome at the Lord's table. You're drinking it and eating it in a worthy manner. For anyone, therefore, whoever eats or drinks the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. By guilty, it's a, it's a, it's a um, or you'll, some texts say we'll have profaned the body and blood of the Lord. The actual way this word is used is, is like you are personally re-crucifying him. You're a traitor to the cause, in a sense. You're one of the people hanging him on the cross. It's one of the things I don't like, and is it how deep the Father's love for us? When he says, we say, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers at the cross. You guys know what I'm talking about, that line? <sighs> it's difficult because while I understand the imagery, technically, believers in Christ are not those who are calling out among the scoffers. They're those clinging to him. Okay? You can say, they're, they're, the, the people who are the scoffers are the people here who are profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Say, well, this is talking about believers, maybe. But it's talking about believers who are causing divi divisiveness. 
at, at the least. Do you guys follow me on that? Okay, anyway. I'm not going to push too hard and make fun of that song. I like it overall, and we sing it. That's fine. But I just struggle a little bit with that one little part. All right. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, examine yourself. Make sure you're not one of the people causing divisions. <coughs> make sure you're not in sin so that you're unworthy of this. Okay? What does that mean? Can you come to the, to the Lord's table as a sinner? Absolutely. Unrepentantly? No. You understand the distinction? Can you come to the Lord's table as someone who's caused division in the body of Christ? Which, by the way, if you've gossiped or slandered or have a bad relationship with somebody in the body of Christ, you're a person caused division in the body of Christ. Can you come to the Lord's table if you're that person? Not if you're unrepentantly so. You understand the distinction? That's why in one place Jesus tells us, you want before you bring something to the altar, what do you do? If you've got a problem, if you've got a division, if you're in division with somebody, you resolve it. You go resolve it first. Alright, so here we go. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and there's a textual issue here, does the body refer to the body as the bread? Or does the body refer to the body as the church? And there's some dis- debate about that. Eats and drinks judgment on himself. I actually think it's talking about the body of Christ, not i.e. the church specifically, but Christ. If you don't understand, if you're not looking to him, okay, if you're missing the point of the Lord's table, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. All right? That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What? What did he just say there? That's a stunner. What did you say? Why some of you are weak and ill and even have died? Literally, by doing it unrepentantly, there's a consequence. It's, it's causing them harm, literally. Doing it unrepentantly is causing them harm. Now the question becomes: Is there something unique about the Lord's Supper that when you participate in it unrepentantly, it can kill you? I mean, stop and just consider that sometime. Is Christ present there? As the judge of the... Yes. Do they mean that in a... Sorry, you know Do they mean that in a spiritual sense? No, they because actually... Some have, some have died because they never came to... Um, and they're a, ill, they're ill spiritually. Is it referred to, to people in a spiritual sense or a physical sense? No, I think this is just talking about physical death. Um... And, and it, it, it's, it's again, look, just, just keep your hand there. The guy, guys will argue about this, and, um, but I think this is talking about actual discipline of spiritual death. Go on in verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, this is a judgment that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper even to judge if we're not taking it properly. Okay, and he goes on to say, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. In other words, these are believers who are being disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's almost like God is doing a mercy killing. You're causing disunity in the body of Christ, and therefore I'm taking you out for your own good. Right? Now, I don't exactly know how to unwind all that. 
I know it seems to be what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I found anywhere in the text where Ananias and Sapphira weren't necessarily believers. They were in sin. Um, but but let's. I don't know that we can conclude they weren't believers. Maybe that was what happened with them. Um, go, go to James chapter 5 really quickly because I, I, I want you to see this. <coughs> This presence and more than just here, just real quick, and then we'll wrap. We'll wrap because I'm late. James chapter five. All right. Verse thirteen. Is anyone, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. By anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. By the way, our elders do that. If you're ill and you want our elders to come pray for you, we're happy to come do that. But look at what he says. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What a strange statement. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for another that you may be healed. This is talking about physical illness, I think. A lot of time to prove that contention. But, but it's talking about some kind of physical illness. And you confess your sins to one another so you may be healed. Does that mean that every time somebody's physically ill, that, they, that they're physically ill because they're in sin? No, clearly not. But it's at least an open possibility. You follow me on that? So it's always the hardest question to ask when we're elders, when the elders gather to pray for somebody who's really ill, and they call us, can you pray for me? We come to pray for them. It's always an awkward question to ask them. But hey, before we pray for you, we need to ask you, is there any unrepentant sin in your life you need to confess? Because if there is, then we don't have any certainty that God will answer our prayers with regard to you. We don't know that maybe you're sick because of your sin. Uh, but we know that God does not hear the prayers. By that, he doesn't mean he knows they're there. Okay, He's omniscient. But he doesn't hear the prayers of the unrepentant. That's clear, actually, uh, both in Peter and in James. He just chooses not to listen to the prayers of the unrepentant. Does that mean prayers of unrepentant people never get answered? No, sometimes they do because God is gracious and merciful, but he doesn't oblige himself to hear the prayers of the unrepentant. He does guarantee he'll hear the prayers of the repentant. You follow the distinction there? Of believers, okay? He hears our prayers. He always hears the prayer of repentance. Always. Right? You guys follow me on that? Okay, so here's my point. I don't know what all is going in first, on in 1 Corinthians 11. I do know, uh, I, so I don't know what to do, all to do with 1 Corinthians 11 James 5. I think it's a bit of a mystery still for me. But I do know that something's going on in the spiritual dynamic in 1 Corinthians 11 that when you come to the Lord's table, it's a serious matter. Because Christ is present, fellowshipping with his people there, and if you're causing disunity in, in the fellowship of Christ, that's a problem. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so I do want to say that minimally. Um, all right. I think I've established at least to a degree that Christ is present, at least, unless you don't believe in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, um, that Christ is present at the Lord's Supper spiritually in fellowship with us. 
um, that's a serious matter, which means the Lord's Supper is a weighty matter. It isn't just a looking back, and it isn't just a looking forward, though those two things are good enough. Right? It's also a present fellowshipping with Christ in which we are receiving through it spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that are ours in Him. So that the Lord's Supper actually serves to nourish your faith, to grow you in sanctification, which is why I refuse to withhold it on Sundays. Just like I don't give you the, the I don't preach the word or pray for you monthly or quarterly, I don't serve you the Lord's Supper monthly or quarterly. I refuse to withhold from you anything that is an opportunity for you to fellowship with Christ and receive the spiritual blessings that are yours in Him, and thus grow in your faith and sanctification. You follow me on that? That's why we have the position we have at Sovereign Grace. I'm not suggesting pastors who don't agree with me are in sin. I do think they're wrong, <laughs> but I don't think they're in sin. Um, I think that, unfortunately, the church has diminished the, the centrality of the Lord's Supper to corporate worship and the experience of the body of Christ and fellowshipping with him. And I think that's a sad event that's taken place in the last 15 centuries, frankly. Um, but, but it has, um, to, to, I think, to our detriment as a body. So, um, all right, let me pray. Father, thanks for, um, we praise you and bless you for all the spiritual blessings that we have in your Son that you've given us in him, that you apply to us presently by your Spirit, that are ours um, eternally, that the Spirit is the seal, the, the deposit, our guarantee that we will not only continually receive them now, but we will know them and experience them fully and forever with you. Thankful for that. Pray that we would be sobered about the importance of the Lord's Supper, this command that Jesus gave to his church for the worship of his church, that we would understand the centrality of that to the corporate worship of the church, that we would understand the benefit that it is for us, and that we would come to it worthily, repentant of our sin, repentant of division that we may have caused in the body of Christ, serious and sobered about the importance and weightiness of the presence of your Son with us, fellowshipping with us at that meal, and us with one another, and Father, joyful rejoicing over what that means for us, the great blessings that are ours in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, brothers, that was way more than you bargained for for one morning, but there you go.